0: Hey, it's alan and i just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad free on amazon music included with prime one thing before we start the show i want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode it's with the host of a brand new podcast called art catex the architects of art the cool thing is this show is hosted by director x and taj critchlow two of the biggest music video directors on the planet These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. Okay, how's this for a question to start the program? Why did Adolf Hitler insist on wearing that stupid mustache? Was it because... A, he really thought he looked good with that thing, or B, he was an admirer of the actor Charlie Chaplin who had something similar, or... C was there another reason if you chose C you're right the real answer was apparently found in a super obscure essay written by a guy who served in the trenches with Hitler back in World War one everyone in the unit was under orders to wear gas masks to protect against chemical attacks from the British but these masks didn't fit very well especially if he had a big stash so Hitler was simply following orders he trimmed his big stash back so it would fit inside the mask The result was one of the most evil and sinister and recognizable looks in the history of the species. In other words, the Hitler mustache was a fluke of fashion. Was it the thing that made him so evil? Well, probably not, but certainly couldn't have helped. By the way, some neurological historians believe that the reason Hitler lost the war was because he had a form of Parkinson's disease that impaired his decision-making abilities. He couldn't make up his mind about what to do in late 1944 and early 1945, and the Nazis end up losing. Just a bit of bonus trivia for you. Let's try something else, something a little more uh, uh, musical. A lot of people email me questions, and I thought we'd spend an hour going through some of them. Oh, uh, there, there's one now. It's a question uh, from Ian in Calgary. He asks, Is it true that Bubbles from the Trailer Trailer Park Boys... Used to be in a band that had a hit record in had a hit record in Canada. Oh crap. Okay. Give me a second, okay. This is the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross. Okay, uh sorry, Ian from Calgary. Let me play you this first and then we'll get to your question about bubbles from the trailer park boys. This is from the summer of nineteen ninety-six. <laughs> a place called Pictou County, Nova Scotia, that's a band called Sandbox with a track entitled Curious. It was a single from a 1996 album released on network records called Bionic. Sandbox won three East Coast Music Awards and were nominated for a Juno before they broke up and one of the guys in the band decided he'd rather go to medical school than be in a group. Mike Smith, one of the guitarists, took a job as a sound man in movies and television. He had this character that he did using a pair of really thick glasses a girlfriend found for him in a Texas flea market. And while goofing around on the set of a 1999 movie called The Trailer Park Boys, everyone really liked the character so much that they wrote Mike into the movie. And this is how Mike Smith, guitarist from the Juno-nominated sandbox, became Bubbles, The Trailer Park Boy. Who now sings songs like um, Lecker and Horse Take Two. Well, like this.
1: a girl. She was nice. She was pretty and
0: clean. Welcome to the show. I'm Alan Cross, and this is a program all about you. Or more specifically, some of the questions that people have sent in through www.ongoinghistory.com. Now, before we go any further, let me apologize if you sent me an email and I didn't get back to you. I get about 500 messages a day, and it's pretty much impossible to keep up with the replies. But I do read every single email that comes in, and I put aside some of the more interesting music-related questions so we can do shows like this. So Ian's question about bubbles from the Trailer Park Boys is out of the way. Let's try something else. This is one of the most common ones. It's from Lisa in Toronto. It's from Charlene from Toronto. It's from Lyle from Brampton, George in London, Alison from Hamilton, Todd from Canmore, and well, just a lot of people asked about this one. And usually the email goes something like this. There's a weird spoken word song done in a Cockney type accent about making a piece of toast. What is that all about? the group is called Street Band. This was a five-piece formed in England back in 1977. They released an indie single on Logo Records in 1978 called Hold On. And frankly, Hold On was an awful song. In fact, it was so bad that several DJs at the BBC flipped the record over in hopes that there was something listenable on the B-side. And this is where Street Band and a lot of other people got lucky. On side two of the single was a song about the simple pleasures of making a piece of toast. Apparently, the guys in street band had come up with the song on stage during a moment when they needed to stretch for time. And when it came time to record their single, they decided to slap this, this jam on the B-side. Now, when this record came out, England was paralyzed by a series of strikes. There was a garbage strike, a miners' strike, a nurses' strike, and a strike of all the bakers' the people who made the nation's bread. It was almost impossible for a while to buy a loaf of bread anywhere, and suddenly this obscure B-side pops up. No wonder this song worked its way up to number 18 on the British charts that fall. They even performed the song live on the weekly British chart show Top of the Pops. So i go back home, switch your kitchen light on, put the grill on, slip a slice under, and have toast. A little piece of toast so much to choose from Street Band to... two words with their 1978 epic Toast that song ended up being both the group's biggest hits and biggest liability when people came out to see Street Band they expected some quirky English outfit instead they got this loud fairly conventional rock band so essentially Toast destroyed their credibility completely and even though street band released a half dozen straight ahead rock and roll singles they were all miserable failures and street band broke up for good in 1979 and descended into obscurity save for this one song and for one member keyboardist paul young went on to a solo career and did very well with a series of hit singles to the early and middle 1980s in fact you might remember this song Every time- Paul Young from 1985, an alumnus from Street Band. If you've been searching for a copy of Street Band's Toast, you might be able to find it on an imported Paul Young CD called The Early Years. The label is V-S-O-P. It's really hard to find now. I actually held it in my hand at one point, and I thought, eh, 30 bucks. I'll put it back, and I wish I hadn't. But there's always the Internet. This is why God invented the Internet, if you know what I'm saying. More answers to more questions from you in just seconds. Welcome back, I'm Alan Cross, and I'm kind of cleaning out my inbox with this show. I'm trying to get to all the questions that people have sent me through www.ongoinghistory.com. And let me tell you something, there's a lot of questions. And not all of them have to do with music. Dear Alan, is it true that a Twinkie contains so many preservatives and chemicals that they will effectively last forever? That's from Laura in Ottawa. Actually, Laura, that's an urban myth. The safe, effective lifetime of a Twinkie on the shelf is 25 days. And like any food beyond its best before dates, I wouldn't eat it. Here's a good one from Brenda, who listens online from somewhere in the middle of Saskatchewan. Do you happen to know Donald Duck's middle name? I don't know why she's asking. Um, But I happen to know. It's Fauntleroy. Donald Fauntleroy Duck. Go, Go look it up let's get back to music. This is from David in Calgary. Dear Alan, with the reunion of the Smashing Pumpkins in 2007, it got me thinking, whatever happened to Darcy, the original bass player for the Smashing Pumpkins? This is a great question. Hardcore Pumpkins fans will remember that Darcy Elizabeth Retzky met Billy Corgan and guitarist James Eha outside a club in Chicago in 1988. And she sort of muscled her way into the new group, which would later become known as the Smashing Pumpkins. She and James were romantically involved for a while, from 1988 to about 1991, actually. Well, they were, in, they were engaged. But then they broke up in the middle of the tour for their first album, and uh, well, then they had to stay working together in the band for the rest of its existence. The story was that in 1999, Darcy quit the Pumpkins to pursue a career in acting. The following year, January 25, 2000, she was busted on crack cocaine charges, Cops on the west side of Chicago found her holding three bags of crack after the car in which she was a passenger made a couple of dumb and illegal U-turns. Darcy was arrested but not formally charged. Instead, she received a court ordered drug rehab program. Now Darcy is originally from Michigan, and as far as anyone knows, that's where she is now, living on her horse farm near a place called Waterville, Michigan which is just off I-94 east of Kalamazoo. Apparently she raises some really great Arabian horses, and she owns three antique shops. I've also heard she's now a trained massage therapist. And in case you're wondering, nothing seems to have come from those acting aspirations. If anybody knows any more about Darcy, let me know. Here are the pumpkins from the glory days of the Siamese dream album, after Darcy and James broke up, but before the horse farm, the massages, and the crack. The Smashing Pumpkins featuring bass player turned massage therapist and Arabian horse expert Darcy Ratzky Okay, next question This is from Greg in Toronto I'm trying to remember the name of a song in the band who did it It's from the early 80s and was probably done by a local indie band The lyric goes I have a rubber in my wallet I just can't wait to install it It has a reinforced border I hope it's still in working order I'm sure you remember it's a funny tune Anyway, I'd appreciate it if you could email me the name of the song of the band. Love to find it somewhere. Many thanks, Greg. Okay, this is easy. It's a track by The Extras called Circular Impression. They're a Toronto band who recorded on the Ready Records label in the early 1980s. The guys in the group were part of the backup band for another Canadian from the era named Bibi Gabor. The Extras broke up and scattered. I know that one of the guys got a job as a chef or a professional cook. And I also know that they digitally remastered and re-released a lot of songs on a CD called Ripe in 2004. And I got your song. Once again, it's called Circular Impression by The Extras. The Extras with Circular Impression, a song from 1981, back in the days when you weren't supposed to talk about condoms on the radio, or just about anywhere else for that matter. was impolite. I get a lot of questions from people asking about collectible and rare records. Usually somebody comes across something in their collection and wants to know if it's worth anything. Well, setting a value on a record or a CD used to be a difficult thing. See, how much a record is worth is dependent on its condition, its rarity, And how much demand there is for it in the marketplace. You could have a -a one-of-a-kind recording on purple vinyl that was released and deleted on the same day in Cambodia, but if nobody cares, it's not worth anything. Prices used to be set by dealers and hardcore collectors and at places like record fairs. Magazines like Record Collector and Goldmine published annual price guides. In fact, Record Collector still does, and it's used by collectors worldwide. Finding buyers and sellers could also be tough, But then things change with the internet, especially with eBay. There's also a great site called www.gem.com, and you spell gem with two m's, G-E-M-M.com. You can also look up a site called www.991.com. And now it's easy and quick to find out how much a record is worth, or how worthless it may be. The downside of all this internet connectivity is that prices, in some cases, have spiked dramatically. Now that being said, here's a question from James. He says that he recently acquired a vinyl collection from a friend, and in this collection was a Sex Pistols 7-inch of Pretty Vacant. It's the original release on Virgin Records, 1977, and carries the serial number of VS-184. Some guy in New Zealand was selling a copy for $510 US. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty good. But wait, Let's go to the Record Collector Price Guide. Here it is. The Sex Pistols, Pretty Vacant, Serial, VS-184, 1977 Issue, Picture Sleeve, some with push-out center. If your copy is in mint condition, the prevailing market price for this 7-inch single is... 5 pounds, which is just over 11 bucks Canadian. Dude, if a guy can get 510 US for what amounts to an 11 dollar record, all the power to him. This is a prime example of buyer beware. The Sex Pistols and Pretty Vacant, originally released in 1977 as a 7-inch single on Virgin Records, serial number VS-184, and worth about $11. Sorry, James. Which reminds me, uh, I guess we should do another show on Collectibles in the near future. Okay, can you can write that down? Yeah, okay. Coming up next, the three most asked questions of this show of all time. Definitive answers in seconds. Like I was saying earlier, I get hundreds of emails a day, which adds up to thousands per year. And if I had to name the three most commonly asked questions I get, it would be these ones. Question. Are the two people in the White Stripes... Jack and Meg White, actually brother and sister? Answer, for once and for all, they are not brother and sister. They are actually ex-husband and wife. John Anthony Gillis met Megan Martha White in Detroit in 1994. She was a bartender at a place called Memphis Smoke, and he was an ex-furniture upholsterer. They were married on September 12, 1996, and in a reversal of tradition, Jack took Meg's last name. They started a band, they released a couple of albums, but then on March 24, 2000, they were divorced. However, they obviously remained friends and bandmates. So where did this brother and sister thing start? Actually, as a joke, when the White Stripes started, both Jack and Meg insisted that they were brother and sister. But when they got famous, the truth was outed, yet some people refused to believe it. But take it from me, Jack and Meg White are not brother and sister, never have been brother and sister, they are ex-husband and wife. The White Stripes, featuring Jack and Meg White, less than a year after their divorce. Fell in love with a girl from 2001. Okay, The next most asked question is, what exactly does the guy say at the end of Radiohead's Just video? Now to review, Just is a song from their 1995 album The Bands. The video clip, directed by James Thraves, features the band playing the song in an apartment. On the street below, a well-dressed man suddenly decides to lie down in a fetal position in the middle of a busy sidewalk. He won't get up. Dialogue between the man and passersby is done with subtitles. He says he's not crazy and that he's not drunk. He just wants to lie there and not get up. But near the end of the video, he finally decides to tell everyone why he is actually lying there. However, the subtitles cut out and the editing gets pretty choppy. It's impossible to tell, even with lip-reading what this guy says. But whatever he has to say, it has an impact, and everybody suddenly lies down on the sidewalk. So there's the question. What does he say that's so convincing? This has bugged Radiohead fans for years and years and years. And here's the bad news. That's the point. We're not supposed to know what the man says. It's supposed to be a mystery that leaves us wondering. Ever see the movie Lost in Translation with Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson? He whispers something in her ear at the end, but we don't know what he said. This is the same thing with the Just video. Besides, if you knew, that would just deaden the mystery. Radiohead and just the song with the video with the mystery. Now, of course, there are many, many, many theories about what the well-dressed businessman says, but they are all wrong. Even the people who made the video, including the band, have no idea what the man says. Again, that's the point. And finally, the third most asked question is this one. Do you think that Kurt Cobain was murdered? My short answer to this is no. Now, there are all sorts of unanswered questions. How did Kurt manage to inject himself with a massive overdose of heroin, put his gear away, and then maneuver the shotgun in time before the drugs knocked him out? What about the fact that the handwriting on the suicide note appears to change? Who was using Kurt's credit card in the hours and days after he died? Why didn't anyone think to check the room above the garden house when they were searching for him? There's more, but you get the idea. In fact, there's been enough for documentaries and books and websites devoted to the subject. Heck, there are even a couple of ongoing history shows on the whole controversy of Kurt's death. But there's something called Occam's razor, which can basically be summed up as this. The simplest answer is usually the correct one. Kurt was a depressed, unhealthy, hardcore heroin addict who hung around with some very weird and bad people. He had an obsession with guns and was certifiably suicidal. None of that is in dispute. His body was so used to heroin that a dose that would have killed a regular person instantly had a delayed effect on him enough for him to put a syringe away and aim the gun that's basically it now i like a conspiracy theory as much as the next guy i mean don't get me started on the jfk assassination but in all honesty i think the whole kurt was murdered thing is just chasing shadows but then again i could be wrong Nirvana with lithium technical production for the show is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's ongoing history of new music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called curious cast and curious cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called art catex. And I have two of the hosts of art catex with me here. Uh, We have Taj Krishlow and director X. And we want to give you a bit of an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first and explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint, if you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music.
2: So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most Uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come-ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you
0: guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with?
1: I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande, well, you know. Okay,
0: uh, now, now now you're just bragging.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Porn, John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey. And and I would say X is the goat because as long as been doing it, like like late '90s to now is still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fellow with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Popstar Star. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario, that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world, and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay,
0: how are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video, now it's going to be only audio, so uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess.
1: I mean. We're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing, you know what I mean um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last the first podcast the debut of our of the show was with Dave Myers, um, another guy that's been in the game for a long long time and just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done, And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about Black Lives Matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, a little different than what we're used to doing.
0: Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling.
2: Give me an example of a story. I guess examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, your lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into. To make that product and and that that piece of art affair is the storyboards and the the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're we're, we're giving them that kind of you know close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right.
0: Because I've I've always I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from. What kind of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things. Uh, And, and I have no idea.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era, watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith, and I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff, and that's what got that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the Hungry Like a Wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the Stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And And before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at Architects Pods.
0: Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art-Katex with Karina Evans, Taj Critchlow and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys.
1: All right.